welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but but look who I've got. I've got, after about, what, six months trying to get hold of him? David Webb, author of possibly the most depressing book you'll ever read. But it, depressing in a good way, in an important way. Before we go on with this amazingly interesting podcast... I'd like to have a quick word on behalf of our sponsor, and it couldn't be more appropriate. You've met them before, Monetary Metals. I've had, I've had the, the founder, Keith Weiner, on the podcast twice now, and he's talked about this extraordinary project, product where you can own gold and actually earn interest on it. And it's a response to this crazy world we're living in, where central banks stroke elites are ruining our economy deliberately they're trying to impoverish us this is a possible route out so let me ask you a question if you could earn three percent in pounds or three percent in gold for the next 10 years which would you choose well if you're like me it's a no-brainer i'd choose gold and guess what i know of a company that lets you do just that grow your gold year after year the company is called monetary metals Monetary Metals offers interest on gold paid in more ounces of physical gold. You can earn 2 to 5% on gold and silver in their leasing program, which supports qualified gold-using businesses. And if you're an accredited investor, you can even earn even higher returns. Think double digits in their gold bond offerings. All interest is paid in physical ounces of gold, so your total ounces grow and compound every, every year. Depending on the interest rate, in just 10 years, 100 ounces could become 134, 148 or 163 ounces. You get the picture. They've been doing this successfully for nearly eight years running. It's time to start earning an honest return on honest money again. Go to monetary-metals.com forward slash Dellingpole to learn more about how to get started with your account. The details will be below this podcast. David, welcome to the Dellingpod. Thank you so much, James. People, people have been buzzing um, in on the sort of places I, I frequent, the sort, of, the sort of alternative channels I frequent, talking about your book, The Great Taking, and saying, have you heard this guy? You've got to get him on the show. Um, it, it's, yeah, what do we do? What do we do? So before, before I sort of um, ask you all the interest, more interesting questions that I want to ask you, just tell me a bit about your, yourself. I, I, I love reading your book, by the way, and I, I, I particularly love the section where you describe how you became a very successful financial person. And it sounds like you really had to work for it. I mean, you didn't just kind of, it didn't just drop into your lap, did it? Of course not. <laughs> Pretty crazy stuff to go through. <laughs> so you're, you're American. We, we, we've gathered that. Just yeah. Take us from the beginning. Oh, gosh. Uh how far back are we talking? Well, just 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 give us the potted history that led you to 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 writing writing this this extraordinary uh, well, book. Well, I mean, very simply, I think I, I mentioned my my grandmother. You know, uh, was I think very important in my early childhood formation. She was Canadian. She, I mean, it might be interesting for this audience. She considered herself to be a British citizen, and. Uh, um, she uh, had come across the lake, was from the uh, Canadian Ontario side of the lake, had come to 
Cleveland to train as a nurse. And um, she uh, was at a hospital where um, they were approached to form a medical unit to be the first, literally the first Americans into World War One. And um, she uh, went along in part because my grandfather was a surgeon and he was going. So they were not married yet. So they had the romance of being in something like Dr. Zhivago or Gone with the Wind through the, through the war. And um, it was um, like scenes from that, the scale of the carnage that they were dealing with. Um, they, had, they were in a facility with 3,000 beds in Rouen, but they had more casualties than that on a daily basis you know, through through the worst periods. So even the cooks were attending the wounded. And uh, she became, uh, I mean, she was in it for quite a long time. My grandfather was in it for the duration. My grandmother became very ill and was shipped down to Nice to recover. And uh, so after the war, they were, uh, these were, they were in their mid thirties when they did this. So they probably both thought they were washed up, that they'd never get married, they'd never have a family, and to have survived the war. And it was, it was serious stuff. Uh, to have survived the war, they got married, uh, honeymooned in uh, Quebec City. They both spoke fluent French by that time. <laughs> and uh, uh, they, my mother was born uh, uh, when my grand, they were both 42. They were the same age, so they had their first child at 42. So this is kind of the triumph of hope. Um, and she was a very strong person, and um, I um, spent a lot of time with her. And she was uh, someone who, uh, uh, she, she was, as I say, she was, she was a Montessori school. She taught me to, I was very independent, so I was washing windows and making tea when you know, running with scissors and building fires when I was three years old. So, um, uh, and she um, she sat by my bedside every night and she told me stories about her childhood and the war. And um, as I write in the book, I realized only as an adult that these were really warnings to me. She didn't make me fearful but she let me know that life was not going to be sunshine and cotton candy. There, there, it was, and that life was about something more than making money. <laughs> I think she she somehow put that across to me as as a small child. So that I think gave me. Um, I, I think that early formation is very important, and then. Um, you know, I grew up in the 60s. It was generally good times. But, you know, the world changed a lot from 1960 to 1970 in Cleveland. And um, uh, by the uh, by the end of the decade, things were really going bad. And um, it uh, we lost a lot of people in our family, including my father's older brother, who died of a heart attack at 51. And he had been the guy who was really um would have led the family and uh i think it was really stress that killed him because it was already that bad and then that piled more 
stress on my father. He had lost his father, his older brother, and uh, going into a period that was absolutely awful with riots and Teamsters, uh, you know, violent actions. And uh, um, so I grew up in that as an older child. That was what I was dealing with. So it was like all hell breaking loose and and the Great Depression happening where, you know, growing up in that and seeing um the places I grew I knew as a boy literally destroyed. Um so of course that layered on a, a you know more in terms of knowing that um well, I, I had I I developed a need to understand what was going on, why it was happening, and there was no one to show me how to do that. I just had to had to go into it. So by by the end of uh, high school, I was you know my father didn't thought I should be an engineer. I would have been a medical doctor, based you know based on my my uh, experience with my grandmother. But I started getting business books out of the library, trying to understand business because I knew it had something to do with that. And uh, my father didn't want me to study business, but I went to a business school. I took a minor in uh, computer, basically computer science systems analysis to beef it up a bit and uh, went um, started with a computer services company as my point of entry chose to be a technical rep because it was harder <laughs> to do that. It was, it was to be the guy that was actually doing the programming. And, um, and I, um, when this company, it was called CompuServe, which some people may remember. It was kind of like a forerunner of the internet in a lot of ways. And they had um, uh, dozens of offices around the country, but I chose to go to the Wall Street office because and no one else wanted to go there. That was not going to be fun. They wanted to go to San Francisco, which would have would have put taken my life in a whole different direction. But going to Wall Street, the office was at Forty Four Wall, right down the street from the you know uh, Wall and Broad Street where the stock exchange was, and the you know the the statue of George Washington and Trin Trinity Church where Alexander Hamilton is buried is all right there and um in this first year so I'm just out of school but in this first year um because I was part of that Wall Street office and I was the technical guy I went out with the sales teams every day into basically every bank, every bond house, every brokerage firm, every investment banking <laughs> department. So the the value of that is, um, as I say, people and situations that you have not met before are intimidating. But once you have met them, the spell is broken. You realize yeah, I can, I can still breathe here. <laughs> and these are, these are just people and it, it, it begins there. So I think that was very important to have done that as a young guy right off. Right. Um, so before we go on to how you, how you made your money, just, just take me back to Cleveland. 
why what was the reason for its its decline uh well cleveland had been um uh maybe the most important industrial center for quite a long time all industry i i'm not exaggerating all industries began there <laughs> the so Rockefeller's first refinery was there. And the reason for this was yeah, the, the canal system was extended west from New York. There was a lot of communication there to the banking center in New York. And then uh, and a lot of connection of the families between, you know, New so when the trains came in, you know, people would go to the in Cleveland they had the terminal tower what was called the terminal tower a huge huge building with a train station beneath it and you'd go there and uh, get on the train have dinner in the dining car uh, go to your room and sleep and get up in the morning in New York and and put in a day of business and then do the same thing on the way back so this was you know before before airplanes there was that kind of communication and then it's also at the southern part of the great lakes on the shore so all the rail lines went through there going to chicago and westward all the communication went through there and the um limestone and um and iron ore would be brought down through the Great Lakes to that point, and the coal would be brought up from the south. So that's where they made steel. Um, so Rockef Rockefeller, you know, oil was discovered in western Pennsylvania. That was nearby. Rockefeller's first refinery was there. It was said that there was a billion barrels of oil just spilled in the Cuyahoga Valley from, from that refinery. And then um, iron, iron making, iron, steel, aluminum, um, of course, all of the petrochemicals, uh, paints, Sherwin-Williams, you know, is there. Um, and then all aerospace as well. There was the Cleveland Air Show, which was the showcase for you know, the fastest planes and what was becoming military aviation. Um, so um, it, it, it was um, it, it was basically all of California in one place before, you know, this is pre-war. And um, yeah. but after World War Two, it had passed its, its zenith. It was also, of course, in a very important area for agriculture and invention. And um, uh, but all of that was steadily destroyed in the post-war period. So it was it was still much of the industry still existed in 1960. But by by the early 70s, it was um, clear that. Well, I think people like my family expected that somehow there would be a recovery at some point. Yeah, but there never was. <laughs> yeah, people, people, so those who, who don't know your name and haven't read your book are going to be wondering where is this going. But it's going somewhere. I think this is all this this background is all relevant because it's like in 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 England in Europe. I think we have this idea that. America was pretty much a perpetual boom after the after the Great Depression and it was all you know everyone was living the American dream 
all across America. But it wasn't so, was it? You you were kind of, uh, Cleveland sounds like it was the bellwether for what would later to happen to places like Detroit. Th- yes. this, this sort of process of, what well, boom and bust. Um, yes. And I think you're going to tell me about more about where this all comes from. So let, let's 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 fast forward now to your your yeah. stellar career as a in 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 finance. I mean, you you worked your ass off um, and made a reasonable amount of money, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 uh, oddly enough, I never really cared about making money. <laughs> I think right. that is something that just kind of is a byproduct, should be a byproduct of what you're doing. So, yeah. um, I, uh, that was never really my purpose. And I, I, uh, but I, 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 I'd say the, you know, I really cut my teeth on doing mergers and acquisitions work as a, as starting as an analyst, and that's where you really learn the nuts and bolts. And this was the you know incredible stress, often working for literally days without sleep around the clock, and um, having to somehow function, be able to think, be able to focus um through that so you you develop you develop a lot of experience about yourself and other people through that kind of situation that was transformative for me and um then i was able to move i did that for five years you know that makes you old pretty fast (laughs) i was gonna say yeah i mean how do you how do you deal with the physical side of it actually because this seems to be are we really designed for that kind of thing to go days without sleep and we can do much more than we know and i basically i was doing fasting without even knowing that that was what i was doing so you know fasting um unlocks something like a medicine you know the miracle medicine medicine chest when you fast so your your body eventually is producing um growth hormone uh and uh stem cells and um i i i guess i was doing that because i was under such stress i just drank black coffee and i didn't eat and it so i think maybe that could help to explain how i was able to (laughs) my body was in a sense regenerating due to due to not eating and but i was I was uh, incredibly thin. There is no fat on my body just from from doing that. So I mean, I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm a bit over six feet tall, and I was under 150 pounds, you know, at that point. Um, <laughs> you look like a pretty yeah. lean guy too. So maybe that's not- yeah. I'm pre- I'm I'm yeah. I am I am pretty skinny. It's true. It's true. But I but I've never gone gone for that for, for days without sleeping and I, I i i mean i have i have family in in your line of business or have done it and i'm just amazed by the stamina and it just seems like i mean how much of it is just needless machismo and how much of this i mean is it really necessary to work around the clock i i think it is i think a lot of it is needless machismo i think that um um 
it's it's part of the drive and excitement of the whole thing. I I I, I mean, they do it in medicine as well. Why why right. do residents and interns kept up? You know, on forty eight hour or thirty six hour shifts. You know, it's a similar well, kind to kill of, patients, presumably, mainly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it, I mean, duh. It really packs. It does something because it it changes your ability to deal with deal with stress once you've been through that. So, um, you know, the the older guys. When I was doing that, the old guys were like thirty five, forty. You know, those were the old guys. And of course, they were rarely working all night. You know, it was, but, but the way it would work is the, the senior guys would come by my desk and after their day of meetings and they would drop off, you know, a pile of stuff and say, I'd like a, a merger analysis on this for a meeting tomorrow. So you worked all night to do that. And then when then then when you were on an actual live deal, it was a big thing. You're right. They they there were it was the kind of thing that you just did not leave. You did not leave hmm. the office. <laughs> so essentially, by the time you'd finished your time in finance, you you knew the industry inside out and you were at the top of your game. Is that is this a fair summary? Uh, but but well, you, you had a what the M&A does is you you really know if you've been an analyst and you've built models, you really know how to tear something apart and put it together in different ways and to go through enormous amounts of information very quickly and find exactly what you need to read legal documents to, you know, none of that is intimidating to to do that. So it's a tremendous um way into it it's the hardest way to come into it but then you can really do anything and what i what i found when i went to this private equity group after that was because i had had this mergers this m a background i could do things that other people couldn't do they were lawyers they had never they had they had no experience with something like this <laughs> yeah it seems that everyone in America is a lawyer. I'm, I'm astonished by how much law sort of your, your system is steeped in, in, in lawyers and, and law and lawsuits. And I mean, it must, yeah. it must take up a huge amount of your economy. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I suppose so. I, I, I find um, I mean, I'm I'm I can handle that stuff because I had to. So I actually yeah. managed teams of lawyers and it, there's a kind of positional advantage because I knew what, what was important and what was not important. The, the, um, the lawyers didn't really know that. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they, they, they're mired in the detail. <laughs> I think we're, we're kind of set up now, unless there's anything else I've missed um that you should th think you should mention but we're kind of set up now for you to tell us about your book about your discovery your yeah. how, how okay. this shocking discovery came about okay so so eventually i was managing hedge funds 
And these were, uh, it was, so this was very intense as well. And this was after um, the Asian financial crisis, what I'm going to describe here. Um, The, I, I was, you know, I, I became a trader. I didn't, I didn't, this is something I ended up going into to understand things. And I ended up doing trading very intensively. So uh, ultimately, I developed this strategy where I had um, three or 400 positions on at the same time. Um, and it was something where I, I was following things. Um, sometimes it was important to do that. Well, I mean, every day it was minute by minute. You know, following following what was happening. Well, with three hundred uh, positions, yeah, 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 and of course there are ways to manage that. Um, but a big a big part of that is to have a mental model that has to be a functional, not a dysfunctional mental mo- mental model of what is happening, so that when something comes up, the way I would think of it, I would hold it up to my understanding. And if it fit with my understanding, I didn't pay any attention to that. If it doesn't fit with your understanding, that you have to pay attention to immediately because it could be, you know, like a heart attack. So most people don't operate that way. If something does not fit their thinking, that's what they ignore is something that doesn't fit their thinking. So can, um, can you give me an example of, 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 of that? In trading. Well, okay, so I'll describe what, what, how, so in this period in the late 90s, I would see that sometimes, so we've, we're, we're in this crisis, a global financial crisis in the aftermath of that, and I would see that at some points, the market would go straight up on, let's say, bad news, something that, that, clearly should not have sent things up and it would be reported later in the news that the market had gone up on opportunistic buying now as if now that that would only make sense if the market had fallen and then buying came in but what i saw happening was they skipped the first step Things hadn't fallen. They would just go straight up on the bad news. Now that that started me thinking. You know, this this is not normal, and uh, there's something else happening here that is uh, driving the markets. So I uh, so this is an example of going after what you don't understand, what does not fit. So I started. Um, Note thinking about money coming into the market. Where is this money coming from? And I noticed the reporting about these uh, bond, you know, treasury purchases by the Bank of Japan. And I noticed these are very big numbers. And um, they they reported in the news that they well this had to happen because they had to recycle trade surpluses into these treasuries. So it's just mechanical. So I decided to look at that, and I found that the scale of the treasury purchases, if you annualize them, was um, 
basically an order of magnitude larger than whatever a trade surplus could be. So we were already at this point where the financialization, what the central banks were doing, was 10 times the size of whatever was happening in the real economy. Then I, then I started figuring out how to look at what the Fed was doing. So again, it's based on this initial impetus of trying to understand what is happening that does not fit here. And so I started looking at the, um, the money supply figures, which were then published by the New York Fed. And um, there was something called M3 at that point, which is no longer published, which was the broadest aggregate of money supply. And I could see those figures week by week and began tracking. So it's always growing, but I could see when it was, well, for the first thing was what is the increment from week to week? And I started seeing that in some weeks, the increment was over 1% of U.S. gross domestic product. Just the new money in one week was over 1% of GDP. And then I realized something is happening here to the velocity of money. You know, I, I, had, I, I had done a money and banking course in about around 1980. And at that point, and I, I had been interested in the, these phenomena, I think, because of what I knew about the Great Depression, even as a boy. And I knew that the, um, uh, well, in this textbook, it said that the incremental money, the new money created, it's not the total money supply, but new money created has a very high velocity of six, seven, eight times. So if a new dollar is created, it gets that you know, that kind of velocity in the economy. So what I was witnessing in the late 90s was an inversion of that, was that the new money creating, create, being created uh, was, there clearly wasn't a, um, um, you know, uh, there, the, the money created was now much, much larger than any growth being created. Whereas it, it, for decades, it, it had been the opposite, that the growth created was multiples of the new money created. So this was beginning, this was inverting at that point. Um, so that's, that's an example of focusing on something that doesn't yeah. fit and figuring out, well, what's really happening here? <laughs> but doesn't it, it must make it quite dispiriting if you're a trader and you're trying to, to respond to hard data like, you know, well, bad news that might that might take the markets down. And instead, you're finding that that the market's going up, but um, funded by people, you can't you can't compete with them on spending. I mean, that must be you must lose lose a lot on your positions if you're not careful. Yeah, so so I um, but it, it helps to understand that it's happening. First of all, yeah. yes, this, this was considered conspiracy theory at the time. It, no one around me wanted to hear about this. Uh, so, but can they not see it in the figures? I mean, if you, you're trying to trade and you're and you're saying let's short the market now, and the market, yeah. I mean, how could you not at, not at that point? So this is this is over twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. 
that was conspiracy theory that the right. central okay. banks were affecting the financial markets. I mean, it's hard for people to uh, understand how anyone could think that then, but that it was so. And for quite right. a while after that, um, I don't think people started to acknowledge the the uh, massive involvement of the central banks until the great financial crisis, 2008, 2000. It had to become so apparent, no one could miss it. But, it, you know, I'm saying if you're more sensitive and you're observing things closely, you can detect that something must exist. And then you go looking for it. <laughs> so, so I was able to use it. It was a tool because I, I found that um, I could buy, um, see the, this growth in the money supply was being affected by what was called the uh, Federal Open Market Committee, the open market operations in the New York Fed. They would, if they, if they intended to grow the money supply, they would make a very attractive offer to buy treasuries from the banks. So at a, at a, a, a it's, it's, a, it's a reverse repurchase agreement. It's, a, it's basically a, a cheap way of financing. They could make it very attractive. So the banks would receive created money from the Fed for these treasuries that they would transfer. And so the so the Fed was basically loading the banking system with money. I could see that show up in the figures, and I knew I had maybe two or three days to get positioned before there would be a reaction in the markets. And then when they were slowing, the when this was decelerating, I knew the market was about to roll over and could um sell long positions add to short positions so i was able to do this actually flawlessly through this whole period of the the inflation of the um bubble and more importantly the bust uh the when it when it broke and um uh you know even in a collapsing market you get very sharp upward moves as well some of the sharpest upward moves are in a declining market um so it's it it was important to be able to navigate that and so there were people coming from all over the world flying into cleveland to try to understand how i was doing this and i i could even explain it to people and they really didn't believe it or they didn't know how to. They didn't know how to apply it. <laughs> that's that's really. I, I was going to ask you that. Did, did nobody notice what you were doing, and did they not try and copy you? But you're saying it's weird, they would it's have copied. A thing because, to my knowledge, they um, they they couldn't somehow figure it out or bring themselves to do it. To my knowledge, they. Um, I don't. I don't think there was a lot of imitation do you think it was cognitive dissonance that, that okay they could see the evidence in front of them but they weren't prepared to believe that central banks were having such an impact on on what they thought was an area yeah, that central banks wouldn't be involved in it was that in a big big way yeah yeah absolutely
People okay. just can't believe it. We so, see what's happening now with things that are going on that most people can't possibly accept. <laughs> what is happening? But I, I don't. I don't want to sort of preempt what you're going to say, but it's it's very interesting. I showed your book to somebody in the financial sector who's very, very, very good, and I was thinking he was going to read it and go, "Whoa, this is a game changer." And he and he and he instead he said, "Yeah, nah, rubbish. Not 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 buying it. Not despite the fact that you provide." uh like links and 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 you you reprint the documents that that demonstrate that this is happening but people don't want to believe it do they yeah the reaction of of your your friend there is you know there's a certain subset of people that are in the industry you know lawyers people people that that and that's just a given that that is their first reaction so I've been I've been through this for years. So it's, um, for example, the top securities lawyer at one of the biggest banks in Sweden. I met with him about this. This was during my period of trying to prevent all this from being implemented in Europe, and he knew nothing about it. And later confirmed that well, yes, this is true. And that's what happens. Even even securities lawyers, bankruptcy lawyers do not know this. They're not aware of it. And they have to go away. They have to struggle with it a bit and then come back. But I, I can tell you at this point, I'll give you an example. Just uh, this, this weekend, I had a call from a guy in Switzerland who is... I think very wealthy, and he uh, he told me that uh, he uh, he confronted his banks, his attorney. He has a family office. The people in his family office with this, and their first response was, as you say, no, this couldn't be true, and they then confirmed that it was all true. He went into the documents himself for Euroclear, where um, which is the International Central Securities Depository, or one of the two in Europe. And he said, on the face of it, uh, you're led to believe that you have, you know, property uh, that is secure. But yeah. he said you go into the 200 pages of fine print. And you find that what I've laid out is absolutely true. And um, uh, there are, uh, I remember I had, after, the, after I first uh, uh, had the, the, the PDF version of the book out in July, I had a call from someone in New Zealand who's a similar kind of situation, a very wealthy person, and he has a network of uh, several dozen people globally, and they were all reading the book and sharing it within their network. And these are all people who are very wealthy or they're managing large amounts, and they all confirm this. So, it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, of course, because that was the question I meant to ask you later. So, so are we ready yet for you to tell us what? Yeah how it works <laughs> what your discover what your discovery was 
Okay. So, so you know, for 400 years, stocks and bonds were um, property, personal property. And I would submit that's why they were called securities. They were secure as personal property. Um, now, the a very sophisticated subterfuge has been put in place over more than 50 years. And the, the key piece of this is that a new legal concept was created of a security entitlement that, that had never existed in 400 years of securities law. And what that, what that does is to supplant your property rights, personal property rights, with something that is a contractual claim. And so you, you, you see enter into the documents uh, the term beneficial ownership, which is a new construct. It is an appearance of ownership. The legal owner is the entity that controls the security as collateral, which you don't hear anything about. You don't, it's completely opaque to you. So the beneficial ownership is that you receive the dividends, you receive a proxy statement. You can, of course, decide when to buy and sell something and, you know, have the profit or the loss. Um, so people believe that they have ownership and this is really hidden from them. And then, then beyond that, these security. So the, so the key thing about an entitlement is it is a contractual claim. And in an insolvency, that means you're an unsecured creditor. To get your own assets back, you are an unsecured creditor. And there are secured creditors that have priority ahead of you to your assets. This is the key thing. Now, how is this affecting? The securities are all held in a pooled form. So you'll hear the term electronic book entry system, a modern you know, electronic book entry system. The securities are all pooled. That means they're held in fungible bulk. There's no specific identification of any customer with, with the assets. So the 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 uh, appearance of ownership is in the books and records at the lowest level in the chain here at the custodian or broker level but the collateral is pooled at, at a higher level is passed up to a higher level so in europe it goes from the central securities depository where you just have the records of ownership at the national level but the the collateral is passed to an international central securities depository where it's pooled. And um, the, the imperative in all these documents around this is that there must be absolutely no restriction that the, these securities can be used on an unlimited basis um, and transferred cross-border and used as collateral by others and free of payment, FOP, and that this will occur, well, it's always going on, it's always going on, but they, we, so let me, let me go into how do we know this, because of course this sounds insane, 
And it is insane. Yeah. It never should have been done. It never should have been done. But there's a reason it was done. Uh, so how do we know this? So it, it was done first in the U.S. by changing what is called the Uniform Commercial Code, which is law at the state level. And it's um, something that doesn't get any examination, really. The, it, this could be done without any involvement at the federal level. No one in Congress would know about it. It would never come up. So um, it was quietly implemented in all 50 states after 1994 over a period of, of uh, maybe five years or so. And um, then uh, uh, in the mid-2000s, there was a change to uh, what's called safe harbor, which is uh, sounds nice. But, but safe harbor is about assuring that the secured creditors uh, can take client assets out of these pools and um, uh, even on the eve of a bankruptcy and with no consideration given. So a kind of collateral grab and totally out, and out of proportion with any claims they even have. Um, so that change was made just in time for the uh, the great financial crisis where all this was tested in case law and confirmed. And I go, go into that in the book, in the case of Lehman Brothers. Um, but then following this, uh, and in, through, through the 2000s, Europe was being pressured to get on board and conform to this model. I'm not sure when it happened in Britain. But in the in the in the whether whether it had started earlier in Britain, but in I, I'll I'll say there was this group, um, the Legal Certainty Group, formed by the EU. And again, what they meant by legal certainty is making it legally certain that the secured creditors can take the client assets in a bankruptcy and it can't be challenged that they have. Uh, there it needs no judicial review. They um, so the legal certainty group uh, was charged with figuring out how to literally subvert national law to make this happen. And they were uh, they sent a questionnaire to uh, the New York Fed to to ask for direction as to how to do this. How should, how do we, how does your system work? How should this be done? So um, this is what is so startling about this and maybe difficult for people to accept. It's irrefutable because the explanation is directly from lawyers for the New York Fed. It's very explicit as to how this works. There's no, no speculation, no conjecture. So what, what's explained is the pooled nature of the securities and that even uh, segregated, quote unquote, segregated accounts are subject to this. Um, so think pension funds, sophisticated institutional investors that are told that their assets are segregated. That is only in the books and records at the lowest level. What that means is they make a big to-do of this, of saying, well, 
The assets of the firm, of course, cannot be commingled with the client assets. You know, so client assets are segregated from the firm's own assets. What they, it's a misdirection. What they're not telling you is they're all then pooled. Um, and so the segregation is basically a lie. Practically speaking, nothing is protected through segregation. It's very difficult, especially your sophisticated investor friends that have clients and a business. They will not want to acknowledge this. It's bad for business. <laughs> well, well, I can I can see that. So, just just um, let me sort of try and explain it. Um. For people who people who aren't that familiar with with how how this thing works, that so in the old days when you bought shares, you were given a share certificate, weren't you? Yeah. And 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 those shares would be hypothecated. There, there would be you you would they would be numbered. You'd you'd know. Say a, a company had a million shares, you might have one, two, a hundred, or something like that. So you'd know which portion of those shares were yours. Is that right? Well, yeah, paper paper certificates were very safe, um, yeah. uh, and that was the beginning of the subversion was dematerialization. And I show in the book that it's clear that that was a CIA project. The guy that ran that was literally a, a career CIA operative who had no background in finance at all. It was a very strange. Uh, chain of things that happened. So there was some purpose behind this, but de dematerialization alone does not sever the property rights. So um, they were pushing that, the G30 was pushing that all G30 countries had to dematerialize. And, well, because uh, of the of, of the paper wastage or something, there's some yes, some yes. environmental excuse. Or so they did that, and of course Sweden did that. Sweden dematerialized, and they tend to pride themselves on doing you know doing things the best, the fastest, and they did. But they maintain proper records. You know, you this is why I moved to Sweden. It was. They, right. they made sure, and of course, electronically, you can know who owns what and you can give them yeah. property rights electronically, but the dematerialization was a necessary precondition for subverting the property rights. As you're saying, if you had a paper certificate, it, 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 it couldn't be done. So, uh, but then the next step was creating the entitlement that, and the pooled nature so that you you had no right to a specific security. See, when I came to Sweden, I could hold, you know, Swedish government bonds, and I had a specific numbered bond. Um, that's no longer possible. Right. And so the next big question is, who are these people that have the real rights to these shares? Where do they, where do they, where does it go? Where does the money go? Yeah, well, there is this Bank for International Settlements document that I reference in the book, and I show this chart, which is quite remarkable, showing the flow of collateral at the top from equity trading desks, custodians, um, 
down to a um, collateral management system, and then ultimately on to um, what are called central clearing counterparties. And the chart is labeled with, at the top, collateral givers, and at the bottom, collateral takers. So it is flowing from the, you know, the hopper at the top of all securities globally. And they, they discuss this in the document that the objective was to have a global view and to utilize all collateral and especially in a time of crisis uh, and that it would be done on an automated basis. So it is flowing to the central clearing counterparties. Now this is the, you know, the average person does not know about this, but <laughs> central clearing counterparties were, were being created and pushed. Um, you know, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. So um, the, the, this is where all the derivative instruments are centrally cleared. Um, now, for the audience, I'll explain. People are confused about the term derivative. What a, what a derivative is, it simply means it's derived from something else. It is not a thing itself. It is a financial contract written about something else, the behavior of something else. And based on the behavior of that thing, payments will be received or there will be an obligation to make payments. So the way derivatives started, there was a, there was a beneficial purpose. It was in agriculture and farmers used, did, this was a contract to sell their crop forward at the point when it was ready to harvest, harvest time. So the farmer was happy to lock in the price, and presumably the person, the entity on the other side of the contract was happy to buy at that price. So everybody was happy. There was, you know, it's a ne negotiated contract, and you knew who the parties were on both sides of this. Then it was used in finance for dealing with things like interest rate exposure. So if you had a floating rate debt, you could swap that into a fixed rate through a financial contract. And presumably the party on the other side was willing to accept a floating rate. You know, it's so um, these, these made sense, but something happened in the 90s that allowed um, uh, an explosion in derivatives contracts. So I started becoming concerned about this in the aftermath of the dot-com bust when derivatives were going straight up in terms of the, the growth in this. So at that point, it was about derivatives outstanding were about twice the size of global GDP, the size of the global economy. Five years later, by 2007, it was 10 times the size of global GDP. The estimates now are that it might be on the order of $2 quadrillion value, which would put it at about 20 times the size of global GDP. Now, how does that happen? It is because they are using free collateral 
from the public behind this derivatives complex. So that is where the collateral is going. And um, the central clearing counterparties, so what they did in the um, last financial crisis was they said, well, it's far too risky to have counterparties that could fail. So we're going to have central counterparties that will we will consolidate all of the clearing. So you are not exposed to the failure of of Lehman Brothers or some other entity. All the all the trades are centrally cleared, and your counterparty is the central clearing counterparty. So they did that in the name of reducing risk. What they did not tell you is these central clearing counterparties have essentially no capital underpinning them. And the discussions over the last number of years are that they can fail and that they're preparing for the failure of these things. Now, what does so? So these these are the geniuses that and, you know, again, this is not a bug. This is a feature. This has been done deliberately. The blowing the whole bubble, create using the public's collateral, creating the whole derivatives complex, uh, then concentrating all the exposure in these entities that are set up to fail and they're planning to have fail. Um, and what that means is if you go back to this response of the Fed to the legal certainty group in Europe, one of the statements is that the secured creditors of a clearing entity always have super priority. The secured creditors of the clearing firm. So that means the client, so what they have done here, this is, this is the end game. The clients that had property now, the way things had been for centuries was if your custodian failed, your broker failed, if they took your property, that was theft. That was criminal theft. They, could, they were free to go out of business, but they had to return. If they took your property, someone had stolen it. It was criminal. Now it's not criminal. Now you have a contractual, we're all fine here. You had a contractual claim, you're unsecured. So they took what was solid, made that a contractual claim. Then they take contracts that never would have had a standing, never would have had a priority claim in the insolvency. And they've given the secured creditors behind those super priority to take all the public's assets. Right. So basically, anyone who's got shares in any is it just publicly quoted companies or yeah yeah it's public public uh, i mean it would be government debt it would be bonds corporate bonds um uh equities um so private private companies are a separate matter and you know the other thing i talk about in the book is um you know the good old-fashioned way of taking everything is through debt uh so if you if you have um, if you have a, a a bust as occurred in the Great Depression, price levels stay down for years, 
and it's not possible to service debts. So um, that is that is what was done in the Great Taking 1.0. It was done based on debt, which is something that's been used for centuries. Uh, with what, with so so what people people are unable to um to 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 meet their repayments, so their property gets yes. confiscated. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but so all the people watching, listening to the show who've got shares in publicly quoted companies or in bonds or whatever, the money is not theirs. Actually, it can be taken at the drop of a hat by persons unknown, but we can kind of guess the sort of people we're talking about. I mean, they must be, we're talking about a very, 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 very narrow section of, of the world's oh, yeah. population. Well, think, think, think J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan yeah. is, Chase is behind all of these entities. Even Euroclear, you know, was, was, was formed by, by uh, um, uh, Morgan Guarantee, you know, which was the forerunner of J.P. Morgan or, you know, before the name change. So the roots, the roots are deep with uh, with J.P. Morgan. OK. And so J.P. Morgan, who presumably there's a there's a what, three or four people, five people, a family, what, who who, who are, own the bulk of the, the shares or the, or the control in J.P. Morgan? Do we, do we know? Are they called still Morgan or are they called something else? You know, um, I have to be honest. I don't. Um, I don't go that far. <laughs> I don't. I don't. People often ask me, "Well, who who are they? Yeah, who are the people that actually control this?" And I, I, um, I value your life. Well, I, I just, um, I don't know. I think. I I think that it's um, I don't think we have to know who they are specifically. Um, yeah. I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure, but but I do talk about this. That I mean, it is the tiny group of people behind the central banks. It is really the central banking power. I think how these entities are controlled and who is actually in the control group, you're not going to actually know. Um, no. So I don't trouble myself with that. You know, I think no. about how this can be resolved. <laughs> um, that, well, let's, let, let, let's, we'll come to that in a moment. Just, just one more question before we, we, we go there. Um, what are the circumstances which would trigger the event which causes the money to go from the beneficial owners to the uh, secured creditors? Well, I think that will be very deliberate. You know, I don't think it's not a black swan. I think this idea of black swans is, again, a kind of misdirection that has been... Oh, it's just made up shit, yeah. Yeah, made up shit that these are very low probability things. No one could have known they could have happened. What I'm describing here is this is all absolutely deliberate. All this stuff is made to happen. It's not going to be accidental. Sure. You know, they're they're still trying to put out this messaging like this Obama film about all hell breaking loose. The idea that no one's in control. No one's making this happen. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. 
apparently it's got loads of luciferian and satanic and occult symbolism in it that, that yeah, I, to, I, I to haven't got there. it up that well it just happened and no no one is to blame so they did yeah, yeah. that with the financial system as well when so i i think when this happens basically the conditions are already in place and all the all the this is well advanced all the plumbing to do this that that Bank for International Settlements document about the collateral management systems and the automation of that, that's 10 years old. So this has been on for quite a long time. Um, the Bank Resolution Authority in Europe, their documents would indicate that they have everything in place. And uh, we know with the backup with interest rates having gone from zero to over five percent that the scale of insolvencies out there uh is um mind-blowing the size of this but very oddly you don't hear about any insolvencies it's it's all being um it's all being masked right now it's all being propped up um, you know, when you look at the scale of the escalating hybrid war and the, um, the, the amount of money that is sustaining this global hybrid war and propping up the, the financial system right now, the only source of that, that is not your tax dollars. It's it, the only source of that is the private central banks that are controlling this whole thing. So so the the implosion of this will come when they decide to have that happen. What's what's the global hybrid war? Well, let's say global hybrid war is um uh I I would I would say um the COVID and the authoritarian measures globally all around that, yeah. uh, going right into uh, Ukraine with now the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians completely needlessly, deliberately. Extraordinary, uh, isn't it? The, the, I mean, a generation just wiped out. Uh, and we're yeah. still being told we must send more weapons in so that the, yeah. so that more young men in Ukraine can die fighting for a completely pointless cause that we invented. The, the, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, cutting off right. power supply to Europe. Um, then the Houthis. Uh, the, the, the what the very strange occurrences around the attack in Israel that has led to the, you know, destruction of Gaza. Um, you... Be careful, you'll get cancelled for that. I've yeah. seen people being cancelled left, right and centre just for saying, isn't it funny that the most heavily guarded border in the, in the world with all these kind of spy cameras and listening devices and the best security forces in the world, the best intelligence can yet be surprised and if you yeah. ask those questions, you are treated like a kind of pariah. Well, as I understand from, from, you know, I've been told that the vast majority of people in Israel also question that. So it's, it's, not, it's yeah. not just people outside Israel. It's the people inside Israel that see it's a lot like the September 11th, uh, you know, attacks. 
It's something yeah. that's used to justify an escalating. This, so this is what I mean by the global hybrid war. It's um, okay. I'm with you. Yeah, and it's full spectrum. It's going. So Sweden has now. I guess it was maybe upwards of a month ago. Um, all of the Riksdag, the parliament, were called together in front of the military and told that uh, to prepare for war and that this will be who you will take your orders from and very serious. Then they went out with public facing uh, basically threats against the public of Sweden saying you were behind the curve in preparing for war and to the point that children in Sweden have been calling emotional support hotlines. You know, the children are terrorized now in Sweden. Um, so this is insane. Something different is happening because this is full spectrum. It's global. It's not stopping. One thing has rolled into the next. It's expanding. So this, what I'm talking about financially is um, part of a piece with that. Before we move on to what the hell we can do about this stuff, I've, I've got to ask you, I can't imagine you've made yourself popular with certain dark forces, let's say, by revealing this information. Have you, have you had any kind of backlash, any threats or anything like that? I did over 10 years ago when I was trying to prevent this from being in, you know, essentially the Central Securities Depository Regulation, CSDR. I, I didn't know it was going to be called that, but I knew it was coming. <laughs> so I was, I was threatened then in, in, in no uncertain terms. Um, I buy stop. Well, I mentioned I mentioned the vignette in the in the book. I had gone back to the US. Uh, I, I spoke about this for the first time at a conference in the US and there was um, a, an uproar in the room. The reaction of the people was uh, astounding. And so it got a lot of attention. And um, three weeks I came back to Sweden um, I was contacted almost immediately by someone who um, wanted to meet me in Stockholm. And he, uh, so this meeting occurred three weeks, just three weeks after I spoke about it. And he um, explained to me who he was, and I'm not going to say his name, but he is someone who is a high-level mathematician who's worked in the U.S. defense industry and has been a high, high, high figure in a political party as well. So this unusual intersection and in, um, you know, the Washington, D.C. area, I presume he's probably with the NSA. And he, um, so he arranged to uh, meet and uh, he asked me to tell him what I had talked about and I explained all of this to him as I'm explaining it to you. Now here's the here's the very interesting thing. He took a moment. He he did not ask any questions. 
he fixed me in the eye and he said, does your family know you were doing this? And I paid for the meal and left. <laughs> that is creepy. Yeah. That is so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's hard to miss when, when someone to explain this to someone and they don't want to, they don't have no questions. They don't want to know any more about it. That's all. That's the only sentence. He was there to deliver that message. And um, so I have to say, when I, when I wrote this, I mean, I was concerned about being able to write it and get it out. So I, I, I wrote it secretly. There were only two people that knew I was writing it. And I wrote it on an old computer that I never connected to the internet. And uh, I would even go to the point of, you know, turning off any, any, anything that was connected to the internet. And uh, uh, when I when I was done, I and it was ready to go. The manuscript I connected it and I emailed it to several hundred people, and uh, that that was the manuscript. And then. Uh, one, um, Dr. Michael Palmer, who is a brilliant man, uh, um, acted as my editor and helped me to, to make sure, you know, he would, he's published, he's, pu you know, he's a scientist, he's published things before. So he went through my sources and he would find that well, this source doesn't exist anymore. Fortunately, I had them all on my computer. So if he couldn't find the source, I then provided the document and he put it up on an archive on the internet. So he, he went through it thoroughly and made sure that it was all bulletproof. And uh, he, he's the one that actually selected the cover image that is just brilliant. I'm very, very, very grateful for that. So then we had the PDF out in uh, July. And then it, um, I think it was still probably there was not much attention to it, but I knew it had gotten out. And then in early September, um, it, it through kind of a miraculous chain of connections, it started being mentioned by people on um, YouTube. And uh, then it, it, so most of this expansion of it has occurred in 90 to 120 days. It's happened very, very quickly. And, uh, um, you know, initially it was other people. I was not ready to talk about it yet. And other people picked it up and were doing pieces on it. How many is it sold? Well, I'm not, I, I, you know, the book, I actually don't know what the book sales are. <laughs> they're, 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 uh, you know, the, the proceeds are directed to someone else. They're not going to me. So I, I don't really know. I think it is probably, you know, it's in the tens of thousands of books, but most of it, I made the decision that uh, this, you know, the way the globalists work 
the way you make something go global is with zero friction. So that's what I decided to do. So the PDF, you know, it has to be free. It has to be easily transferable. So the, the PDF has been able to spread essentially virally globally. And um, now the, the documentary on the heels of that, but, but the book spread that way. And I had, I had someone that came, actually came to Sweden to do an interview. And um, he was asking me, well, how do, you, how do you think this has gone? And I guess this was in November. And I said, well, I think, I think there are hundreds of thousands of people that have it now. And because I can see how many have come to the website, but um, he he shook his head and he said, no, it's much bigger than that. He said that at that point, maybe 20 people had sent it to him already and something like that had never happened. And I've had other people that that said initially maybe some people were contacting them about the book and then it got to the point that it was multiple people every day contacting them about the book so it's well this is what you want isn't it so i'm interested to know what the you you sort of given us a, a hint of it but what has been the reaction in particularly i suppose in the tier just below the the beneficial, or well, sorry, not the beneficial owners. The uh, what do they call the people who get all the money in the end? The secured oh, creditors, counterparties, and the yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so just below that, you've given an example of people with family offices who are clearly not in on this scam. Oh yeah, well that's very now, interesting because these people are billionaires and yeah. multi-billionaires, and for them to realize that they will not have a seat at the table, that yes. they are left out, that is very, very important because, you know, as I've, as I've taken this saying, the, the, we know divide and rule has worked well through, through yeah. history, but it will not work now because they've taken this insane logic of totalitarian control to the point of um, injuring everyone everywhere all the way to the top of the system and at the same time so it's not going to work <laughs> and, and so so what happens with these very wealthy people there's an initial phase where they they realize this is actually real and then even they panic they try to figure out where can i go how can i run away from this what and my real message is you can't i've reached the conclusion you cannot run away from this so we we can only stop it it has to be stopped there's no alternative so it's a moment in human history like nothing we've ever faced really okay so you've got you you had the the swiss person um the other day you had the new zealand people how many other sort of billionaire um class people you know, this network, I, w I was told this group by the man in new zealand they're in you know dubai monaco buenos aires uh vancouver 
London, you know, Sydney, literally, literally all over the world. Because they must be talking. I mean, they, they, these guys chat, don't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. So they they know this is how real it is. And that is actually our um, our hope is that, you know, we we need the adults in the room <laughs> to realize we are the adults. There's nobody <laughs> there's nobody that's going to handle this for us. We have to handle it. <laughs> I, I mean, they, they've got the money to afford lawyers who. Yes. But what is what would be the mechanism for 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 undoing this stuff? Okay, it there are two things, two levels. The first is reverting the local law. This is where it was subverted. So in the United States, it's reverting the state law the Uniform Commercial Code. It is easily done if you if if people in any one state get focused to do it, to understand this. And then it begins to unravel. In Europe, it would be people in any one national uh, uh, any one national group that would realize as as this is progressing, hey, we have to do something to secure the property rights of the people here. So it's not gonna it's not gonna happen at the EU level. <laughs> that, that is the EU. No, is no, but helpful. so it has it has to be done at the national level to to because uh, you know what they've done is I've talked with one European attorney who said. You know, and he's gone into the documents and he has said there is no doubt that this is criminal fraud, is patently criminal fraud. The documents on one level lead people to believe that they have property. When you go into the details, they don't. And um, it's, it's, it's done deliberately. They're taking the property of people without their knowledge, free of payment. You know, a, a classroom of twelve-year-olds would be able to say that is criminal. <laughs> That's theft. It is. it is theft. So it's it's up to people to. Um, you see, the problem is so awareness has to spread now. People have to know this now because when this goes off, it will be in the context of a lot of violence happening globally. And people will be absolutely terrified and not able to get their act together to deal with any much of anything. And this this is where this is going is to create the conditions where people are they've lost everything. They don't really understand how, but it, it happens overnight. And then they're offered central bank digital currency as a way to yes. You know, so this is this is where it is going, and that's very uh, very well advanced, and it's essentially what was done in the Great Depression. It's it's the same scheme. Shall I explain that? <laughs> it's, it's so yes, sir, how, please do. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. So one one thing that Ed Griffin, you know, Ed Griffin, G. Edward Griffin wrote the Creature from Jekyll Island, which I had not read, but I've read recently. And he, he is a great man, and that is a very important book. 
and all the reference materials. So he dis- he went into the memoirs of the people that were present at the um, meeting at which the Federal Reserve was planned. And their chief concern was that the U.S. economy was functioning without them and actually running away without them. So the growth in banking was in banks that they did not control. It was in mainly in the West and in the South. Further, industry was doing so well that it could finance its expansion internally through cash flow and did not need their credit. So they were being left out. So what did they plan? And this people, it's hard for people to hear this. They've been given a false story. Their intention was to literally destroy the U.S. economy and the world economy, but mainly mainly the U.S. economy, which was the epicenter. So now, now hear me out on that. What did they do? Once they created the Fed, they had fiat money now on a big scale. They um, created World War I. They financed the Bolsheviks. <laughs> literally riding around in cars with them. Um, they, uh, um, you know, then, then the, the bubble leading up to the bust in 1929, the early 30s, they created the banking crisis. And then um, uh, um, uh, when the bank holiday came, which was a surprise for people, people didn't know that was coming. When the bank holiday came, they closed all the banks suddenly, and these 9,000 banks were never allowed to reopen. So they put out of business all their competition. The only banks that were allowed to reopen were the Federal Reserve System banks, literally. And then for good measure, they had put into the act that Federal Reserve Act, that they had to have a certain ratio of gold backing. So they created the rationale in the crisis that if they were to expand credit, they would need to take, confiscate the public's gold to provide more gold backing, um, which they did. But the thing that people don't realize is the real reason for that, because they didn't use it to expand credit. They kept conditions tight for years. What was the real reason? It was, again, so that the economy could not function without them. During the period when they were keeping conditions tight, creating deprivation and driving businesses under, taking them over in, in bankruptcy, if the public and businesses had gold, a parallel economy would have developed without them yeah. using gold. So they that is the real reason. So that what we are seeing now, they absolutely will collapse and devastate everything. That's how it's a war. That is how it is a hybrid war. Right. And, and then they will not allow a parallel system to develop. Everyone will be dependent on central bank issued money, which will they, that is a control system. So this is their dream, and you can go into many writings through the you know the the mid century 
by people like Bertrand Russell, uh, that and people out of the Fabians. This has a long beginning in terms of planning. They they believe that um, um, you that individual autonomy cannot be allowed. Really, literally, individual you know aut uh, autonomous economic. Oh, the loss of Fabians cannot be allowed and um, that popular democracy can't be allowed. You can have an appearance of it, but it can't be allowed <laughs> that you have to have an elite group that is an aristocracy yeah. that is actually running things and that no nation can be allowed to have personal liberty because it would outcompete the totalitarian countries. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's necessary to have one world government if there will be an orderly system. <laughs> I'm never going to go and see another George Bernard Shaw play again. Not that I'm, I'm tempted, but but these people—they're just. Do you? Where are you, by the way, on the on the ultimate nature of this 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 war? Do, do you do you see it as a clash between? good and evil and uh, oh absolutely this is this is you know believing in evil had gone out of fashion people didn't want to believe it could exist but i think it's hard to dismiss that there is we are in something that is spiritual now um but as you know people have say, said and i would say the religions have let us down they were all infiltrated, all corrupted. They mm, have, they totally. have, they haven't helped us. You know, they've aided and abetted the evil. Um, but what is growing is um, is um, a kind of non non branded spiritual spiritual awareness because we're we're dealing with something that is so big and so awful that it's it's uh, you know it has to be approached in some different way and i think this is deep in in our humanity that people have had to pass through just horrible things and horrible times and transcend that somehow and that's what we're that's what we have to do and you have to accept this gratefully that you know, you, you would rather know than not know, and to know that these people are condemning themselves with their own documents, their own words, their own actions, so that they're making it more and more manifest, so that we will be able to pass through this. Yes, I, I, would, I would just on, on a footnote there, I, I would separate christianity from the actual sort of religious structures which have accumulated around it over the years yeah. i mean i think I, yeah i think that i think that christ was probably not a bad guy <laughs> i think he well he, he didn't have he, he took a a fairly dim view of money changes for example yes. so i think we know what he would think about these guys who are currently well, and if you if you go into the words of Christ as opposed to what other people, you know, what's in scripture, what other people said about things, but his statements were pretty pretty spot on about Bang things. on the money. Yeah. yeah. Did, um I, I was 
I don't know what things are like in the States. I mean, you, you, where do you live now? You don't live in the States either, do you? I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm north of Stockholm in Sweden. Oh, okay. Um, the, you were talking about remedies. I'm looking at my own country and thinking, I'm looking at our current excuse for a government. And I'm thinking these people are all grotesquely compromised by the system. They're all in bed with these, with these evil elites, the replacement government, which is going to come our way, I think by, by, by arrangement is, is, is headed by a guy called Keir Starmer, who is a member of the trilateral commission. So he is, he is, you know, the bitch of all these, these, these families that own JP Morgan and stuff. So he ain't going to do anything. I don't see any of the sort of the lower, lower tier of, of ministers in either party or indeed the backbench MPs doing anything. So I I don't know who is going to save us because it it ain't the politicians. And I don't think there's enough awareness among the ordinary populace. I mean, I'm, I'm, People like me are quite an exception, you realise. We, we maybe represent about 5% of the yes. population. So yeah, it's, it's changing, though. And, uh, you know, someone used the, the analogy of a membrane that, you know, once people pass through this membrane, they don't go back <laughs> to the other side. So, they, you know, we continue, we continue accumulating on on the right side of the membrane and i've i've started seeing i'm seeing shifts in people um it's it's becoming hard to miss and and this is the purpose of of the book is to explain this uh, the way i think of it we've we've all experienced this through the covid period um you you know fear shuts people down they they have what I would say is their get out of jail free card. That means, you know, if you were trying to talk to me about something, I have this card. It means I don't need to listen to you. <laughs> and, and I've I've stopped listening. And and it, it, if it, it's it's this phenomena when people are have been confronted with conflicting you know, unpleasant information, they just shut down. It's just leave me alone. So providing um, more information does not help. What has to happen is there is something that punches a hole through that. And it's different for everybody what that will be, just the hole. And then the information starts going in once the hole is punched. And that is my purpose with this book is to make it concise enough, really irrefutable, so that people at all levels, but particularly the kind of people you're talking about that are at higher levels in the system, it will punch a hole for them. <laughs> well, let's hope so. Just just tell me before we go, um, your documentary, well, uh, what's this? I haven't seen it. Oh, okay. Well, you can also find that on the, you can find links to it on the website. Anybody can go to thegreattaking.com, find the free PDF. Different people have jumped in and translated into other languages. Oh, so good. Those there as well. Um, the documentary is linked there, but you can just go to YouTube or Rumble. It's still up on YouTube. It's got a How lot of... Come? It's... Um, I I I don't know. I don't know. 
but it's maybe it's, you're it, doing their work for them maybe you're a secret <laughs> i i i don't i don't know i think it i think they're studying it maybe they're they're wondering you know they don't they don't they don't want to they don't want to make me a martyr at least i hope yeah they, they don't want they don't want to draw attention they're yeah. probably monitoring monitor monitoring to see if it's getting to some kind of critical point i don't yeah. know it is too popular we must kill it now yes yeah that that, that will happen oh i haven't asked you um gold yeah i mean you, you said nothing i mean surely if people sort of liquidated their shares and bought gold bars wouldn't that be a well i think that can be that can help you to not be the first to fall so to speak <laughs> yeah. you know the main thing is to get get out of debt pay off debts if you can but i i also you know i have compassion for people that are in so much debt they can't do that and you know i say to people if 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 selling your home to pay off all your debt would destroy your marriage and the happiness of your children, you know, don't do that because we, the main thing is we have to get through the few years ahead reasonably happy with, with well being. So don't just do things for financial reasons because you, you feel you have to. But if you can, if you can do things like sell your, financial assets to pay off all your debts that would make me rest more easily um buying debt what you, you mean what people with debts what 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 why are they particularly vulnerable in in these times well what, what because, could the enemy do because uh the good old-fashioned way of doing this is to have uh quite a drop in economic activity and price level so that it becomes um very difficult to support your debts. You know, we talked about that. I so, see. Yeah, yeah. Like Great Depression. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, both sides of my family, the way they got through the depression was they had no debt. You know, it's the old, old fashioned way. And it was still very, very difficult. But then, you know, gold, the case for it is that it isn't the collateral backing now as it was in the, uh, in the 20s and 30s, it's financial assets that are the collateral backing. So you must pay attention to that. But just because it's not the collateral backing, it doesn't. And I would also say it may be that the, the people at a high level behind this are actually hiding in gold, using gold. It may be. But that doesn't mean that the public, the great unwashed, will be allowed to keep gold so this is the parallel system that they don't want a parallel system so i would say it might protect you through a first phase of this but ultimately if they are allowed to do a mop-up operation and run unhindered they don't want people to have any means of conducting commerce outside of the cbdc so they they their control of the system must end now this is I talked about the local level of attacking this and reverse reverting the local law but ultimately we have to understand that there's an unholy trinity of the central banks and warfare and totalitarianism 
direct connection. The, the people, they, the central banks are born in war, literally. They are created to fund wars, and they do that. They magnify their power through wars, and they always have supported totalitarian movements, which would because they're not capitalists. The rest of us may be capitalists, but they, they, are, they are not capitalists. So, so we have to understand they have funded all of these public-facing operations that are um, uh, very malevolent, highly malevolent now. They are bent on population reduction in a not nice way. And um, the only way to stop that is to cut off their funding. The objective is to end the central bank control of everything. So that people have to start understanding that and talking about that and understanding that if they are gone, things get better right away. Yes. I think we're going to end on that optimistic, semi-optimistic note. Um, David, it's been, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Tell us where we can find your your book. Yeah, I can go to thegreattaking.com. So you can find the free PDF there. There are print books on Lulu, L-U-L-U. There are links from the website, but you can just go to Lulu and and search for The Great Taking. Uh, And then the documentary is on um, YouTube and Rumble. and uh yeah again the the foreign language translations are expanding and that's nice to see i don't know how good they are because i don't i don't read the read in those languages but it's impressive that people that's the great thing about this is people have felt personally motivated they've picked this up as their they've made it their own and that's what makes something powerful well, thank you for blowing the whistle. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book and I've, I've loved talking to you. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a great podcast. I'm, I've, I've really enjoyed doing it. Um, it thank only you. remains for me to to um, thank you, dear viewers and listeners, especially those of you who support me. I mean, I appreciate all of you looking at my stuff. You know, I want to be seen and I want to be listened to. Uh, but yeah, do please keep supporting me if you can on, on Substack is really good. Locals um and go to my website jamesdellingpole.co.uk that's another good place to go uh buy me a coffee if you can't do any of those i appreciate your support but please keep doing it and and definitely check out david's book and and his document i haven't seen the documentary yet but check out the book it's a, it's a great read and it's really important and spread the word thank you again david webb thank you james <laughs>